Amen. So I, I genuinely get excited to talk about uh, what God has done in our home city of Portland, Oregon. And if you know much about Portland, well, I'll, I'll get into that a little bit later. But, but I'm going to start off, um, I'm, th- this, this quick message I'm going to give um, is, uh, I'm just entitling it, Word, Deed, and Power. Word, Deed, and Power. And uh, my dad, again, some of uh, uh, Brooke mentioned, my dad is a, an evangelist named Luis Palau. Some of the old timers will probably remember or know that name, or maybe you hear him on K-Love. The younger people are going to be like, I have no idea who you're talking about. Uh, when I was a kid growing up, um, the, the quick way of kind of describing who is Luis Palau, who's your dad, it would be the Billy Graham of Latin America. And some of the younger people are like, I don't know who Billy Graham is, so that's not helping me at all. But uh, trust me, Billy Graham has, uh, spoke to more people in, in the, hist- the you know, face-to-face than anyone in the history of the world. And both Dad and Billy Graham just motivated by a life transformed by Jesus Christ and a desire to share this life-transforming message all around the world. So Dad uh, was born in Argentina and from a pretty early age had um, a, a, that same kind of passion to share the good news of Jesus Christ. It had changed his family. They were living in a little suburb of Buenos Aires, and uh, his family came to Christ. And Dad, early on, had a passion to share the good news. He, Even though his dad died when he was 10 years old, and that left Dad as the sole financial support from the time he was 16 for his widowed mom and five younger sisters, while he was on breaks at the Bank of London in Buenos Aires, he would go preach on the street corners and just did everything he could. They bought a little tent and he would do vacation Bible school kind of stuff. He had a little radio program. So anything he could do to share the gospel, uh, Dad would do. But in, but in his heart, his dream was always, I would love to do something bigger, bigger, bigger. Not out of ego, but just a desire to say there are so many people that haven't experienced the love of Jesus Christ, that don't understand the good news, that don't understand uh, John 3.16. God loved the world so much. God, who created this whole universe, loved this world so much that he gave himself, really. He gave his one and only son, uh, gave to die on a cross. We're celebrating that on Good Friday, this coming Friday, celebrating the fact that the death of Jesus wasn't just one person who happened to die as an example. It was the God of the universe paying the penalty that we deserve for the sin that we've done, for the mistakes we've made, and then raising from the dead that we're celebrating a week from today. And that whoever believes this message, whoever receives Jesus Christ, would have eternal life. So that message captivated Dad, and he had a vision to share this message all over the world. Um, His real desire was to do... Billy Graham-style crusades. And uh, in 1966, Dad had his, finally had the opportunity um, to do this. That's the next slide. Let's see where it comes up here. I don't know who's doing the slides there. But anyway, in 1966, Dad had the opportunity um, in Bogota, Colombia, to finally have the fulfillment of his uh, uh, dream for all these years. And it was kind of that traditional Billy Graham crusade. But Dad was the first Latin American to get, eh, let's see, oh, it'll come up. Dad was the first Latin American um, to, to be able to have that vision to say, what does it look like to have all the churches of different denominations working together um, to, to kind of stand in the sense in the center of the city, uh, in this case in Bogota, Colombia. There you see it. That's on the steps of the presidential palace. 
um, the kind of the main square of, of Bogota, Colombia. This was the first crusade, as we used to call it. There you can see a young, fiery Luis Palau proclaiming the good news. It's kind of old school, right, uh, by our standards today. There he is in a dark suit and a tie and holding the Bible. But, but the motivation was that same passion. How do we get the message of Jesus Christ all around the world? And so that word part, I mean, all of us that know Jesus Christ, I hope that we're motivated. I hope we believe that the good news, which is what the word gospel means, that the good news really is good news and it's worth sharing. And so um, as the decades went on, a dad I mentioned was from Argentina. It was actually a pastor from uh, the Bay Area, from Palo Alto, California, that came down and uh, heard about this guy, Luis Palau, and uh, convinced dad to come up to the U.S. and lived a little bit in Palo Alto and convinced dad to move up to Portland, Oregon to go to Bible school, Multnomah School of the Bible. Now it's called Multnomah University. That was where dad met uh, my mom, Pat Schofield, and they uh, started having kids and the four of us boys came along. But after decades of doing this, this kind of crusade ministry, kind of old school, we made the shift toward a festival approach. And Portland was the first place where we took this step of trying something a little different, having an outdoor music festival with bands like Toby Mac and Lecrae and Chris Tomlin, etc., uh, bringing in Pro Skate and BMX and FMX and Family Fun Zone and a food court, and just making it a, a, a simple way for people to come together under the sound of the gospel. So that's kind of 50 years of the Luis Palau Association all wrapped into uh, uh, a short and sweet first number of years around the word. Um, but, you know, the deed side is equally important. And uh, Portland, Oregon, you know, being this very crazy, quirky place, if you know anything about Portland, it's similar to most of the West Coast in that it's not the Bible Belt. Have, most of you have figured out you don't live in the Bible Belt. Can I, sure, I have a show of hands? You realize you don't live in a place where most of the people you go to school with or your neighbors wouldn't naturally have a conversation about where do you go to church? And it's just not a conversation that's comfortable ha- uh, being had in most parts of the West Coast. Portland, Oregon is that kind of a place. A uh, very, very quirky, liberal, progressive kind of a place. Um, Portland, for example, has the world's largest naked bike ride. Did you know that? <laughs> every year, every year they break the record. I, you notice I said they, not we. Uh, I have not participated in this, but more than 15,000 people, I think that was the record last year, 15,000 people ride their bikes naked through the streets of Portland, Oregon. Uh, Don't ask me what the purpose is. I think there's supposed to be some kind of statement that's being made. I haven't figured out what that is. I've never attended. I've never observed it. And don't think too much about what would that be like. (laughs) Just put that out of your mind. But but that's a very Portlandia-like thing to do. Uh, Portland prides itself on being quirky for the sake of quirkiness. There's a TV show that just finished called Portlandia that just pokes fun at the extremes to which Portlanders will go to be different. Um, and, and so Portland, um, our Portland story, it's not just about a crazy, quirky place. There's a theme verse that, that for about 10 years has defined what it means to be a follower of Jesus in Portland. It comes from a passage in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29.7, that says, Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for if it prospers, you too will prosper. And we had a group of pastors about 10 years ago, 11 years ago, we had a group of pastors about the size of, uh, you know, about the number of people that are in this room. 
And in a season of prayer, we, you know, we knew that we were not making enough of a difference for the gospel. We knew that we weren't uh, really penetrating our community in effective ways uh, with the good news of Jesus Christ. We, we knew that despite our desire to share the gospel, because of the way that Christians come across in a place like Portland, we, we had kind of dug this 10-foot hole of misunderstanding over the years, unfairly perhaps, but we'd kind of uh, become known way more for what we were against than what we were for. A lot of Portlanders would have said, what in the world value is there to following Jesus? What, uh, what earthly good are these churches to Portland? Um, and uh, at the time when we were having this prayer season with pastors to say, how could we do something that would make a bigger difference for the gospel in a place like Portland, Oregon? And again, recognizing that the church was known for some pretty negative things, unfairly perhaps, um, we went to see the mayor. So the, 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 the idea that the churches had was, what would it look like um, for the church to come together to unify around loving and serving the community? How could we demonstrate that? So the mayor at the time um, when we were having this conversation uh, was a guy named Sam Adams, like the beer, and he was the first openly gay mayor of a top 25 city in the country. So that was his background. So you can imagine in a liberal place like Portland, Oregon, you're the first openly gay mayor of a top 25 city, and then all of a sudden these Christians want to meet with you. So Sam, you know, had a lot of questions like, why do these... Christian leaders want to meet with me. And the pastors, by the way, um, had kind of deputized my dad and I to be the ones to go talk to the mayor. So like, thank you very much. You guys are very brave. Uh, but, but there was a sense of, you know, we've got to do something to break through and to demonstrate the love of Jesus to, uh, to our community. So the idea was simple. Could we go and build trust with our city around loving and serving the community? And, and the, the passage that that really captivated our hearts was this passage from Jeremiah. And the background of this passage is uh, the people of Israel had been taken physically captive to Babylon. So they were taken out of their comfort zone to a place where people spoke a different language, worshiped different gods. There was no temple. that They destroyed the temple at that point and took the leaders of Israel into captivity. And I know a lot of people in Portland that follow Jesus tend to feel a little bit that way themselves. We've kind of lost our cultural center. We've lost a culture that values what we value. Maybe there's a little bit of a sense of being in exile, kind of being out of your comfort zone. And uh, what we tend to do as followers of Jesus, at least you know, in these last few decades, what, what people tend to see us do as followers of Jesus uh, are one of two things that aren't the greatest, and then what we're commanded to do, what we're encouraged to do in this verse, what we tend to do is either back away and kind of say, the culture makes me feel very nervous, the values that I value aren't celebrated in our culture, I'm going to basically be part of a Christian subculture, an evangelical subculture, my kids are going to go to schools that value the same things, I'm going to saturate myself with media that values the same things, nothing wrong with those things, we should raise our kids as best we can in environments that value God's word. But at times that attitude can make us very much separate from the world and kind of have the attitude that we can just kind of protect ourselves safely away. And then of course our influence on culture, our ability to communicate the good news virtually disappears because we're only hanging around with people that already believe what we believe and already value the good news of Jesus Christ. Or of course we can take the tact of kind of fighting back. I'm not, we're not going to take it sitting down anymore. This is our country. This country was founded on Christian values. 
we're going to band together and we're going to vote a certain way. We're going to back this candidate or that candidate. and We're going to take back this country. Guess how well that goes over in a place like Portland, Oregon? Not so well. And I would imagine you would say, yeah, that would go over uh, as well here as it would up there. This is not a place, you know, you don't live in the Bible Belt. You know that. And um, uh, it's, it's, it's uh, sad how much the Christian community in the last few decades has become known more for what we're against than what we're for. So that, the background of this verse was our capturing or recapturing as Christian leaders, what is it that God commands us to do? Not either fight or flight, uh, but really engaging with the culture, recognizing that we are part of the same community. We're part of building, living out the kingdom of God, letting people see the fact that as followers of Jesus, it's not that we have to be afraid of culture and either run away or fight to try to force it into our mold, which never works anyway, right? How well has that worked uh, in our culture? Despite our efforts to fight politically, etc., that in itself, and I'm not saying we shouldn't vote. I'm not saying we shouldn't have Christian schools. Don't get me wrong. I'm saying that if that's our primary strategy, the unintended consequences, the very people that we're trying to love and serve view us basically as hate mongers and people that are basically, all I know about you people is you hate this group and you hate that group. Not exactly the way that we want to come across as people trying to win people over to faith in Jesus Christ because they see something radically different in our lives because of Jesus Christ. So all that's the background uh, where we went to see the mayor, dad and I, he was nervous because he didn't know why these Christians were coming to talk to him. We were a little nervous because given his background as a very prominent LGBTQ community leader and mayor, we just didn't know whether he would even accept having the meeting. But to his credit, you know, as a mayor, he's used to meeting with all kinds of people, even people that he th- thinks he's not going to agree with. He was very, very gracious. And we just explained, you know what, mayor, we are really, really sorry and embarrassed that in all these years... As a Christian community, we've never even sat down with you or previous mayors to say, we love you. Thank you for serving our community. God's put you in this place. We're commanded as Jesus followers to pray for you and serve our city. And we kind of used a little bit of this passage without going into all the detail, but just to say, as Jesus followers, um, the, the command, one of the commands we have is to work together and to seek the shalom. Uh, the word shalom, the Hebrew word is translated here, peace and prosperity to work together to seek the common good, to work for the same things that the city of Portland or Portland Public Schools or the foster care system would all agree with. Let's seek the well-being, the peace and prosperity of our city because the reality of it is if, if it prospers, we all prosper together. So our simple idea, Mr. Mayor, is if we could mobilize 15,000 Jesus followers from all this community of churches because we already had the vision to say, you know what? In August of 2008, we're going to have a big gathering, a festival celebration in our waterfront park, which is right there along the Willamette River, kind of our central park. We had this vision to say, let's bring in some great music, food, etc. We're going to gather tens of thousands of people. Bring your friends that don't know Jesus. We're going to proclaim the good news. But this time we said, what if we build that gospel proclamation around months and months and months of letting people see our good work, to see the deeds that, that the love of Jesus compels us to do. And so we said, we think we could mobilize 15,000 Jesus followers to love and serve the community. What kinds of things could we do? We're not experts. We're not community development experts, but we have some good-hearted people 
that have already been serving. So because we knew that the churches were already serving. It wasn't like we were inventing community service. But nobody knew what each other were doing. Churches had no conception of what the church down the street might be doing. So the idea was if we could shine a light on the good that was already being done by churches here and churches there, but then kind of collectivize it and, and, and help our city leaders see the good that was already being done, but also to use this environment to kind of cast fresh vision, including with the mayor himself. We gathered 500 pastors and leaders and had the mayor come. He was nervous because he told me afterwards as we became friends, I expected half the crowd to kind of stand up and march out in protest. That was his conception of the way Christians would treat someone from his background. So so this conversation took place. What could 15,000 Jesus followers do? And he mentioned all kinds of ways to serve, but in particular... He mentioned uh, public schools. Um, The public school system in Portland at that time had really, really fallen on hard times. Only 55% of the students were graduating on time from Portland public schools. I mean, imagine a situation, and Portland's a beautiful place, um, where the public school system has faltered to that degree. And so in particular, he mentioned um, Roosevelt High School. Uh, Roosevelt High School had been built in the 1920s for 2,200 students, and it's a, it's a beautiful school, as you can see, this beautiful old school, but as the neighborhood had changed over the decades, uh, uh, it had really dwindled in a lot of ways. In fact, when this conversation took place, and Sam, as the mayor said, one of the projects you could do was, would be to just do something to help Roosevelt High School, it was specifically because uh, they were down to 400 students rattling around in a place that had been built for 2,200. Uh, there was no football team because they'd condemned the, they condemned the grandstands five years earlier, and there was no community will or interest to do anything about it. And in fact, it was on a short list of schools to be closed. And we found out later on, as Sam became a good friend, that uh, one of the reasons that they picked Roosevelt was because they figured, how much damage can these Christians do? We're going to probably close the school anyway, so go to town. I mean, they didn't tell us that at the time. But, uh, but, but he and the school superintendent, Carol Smith, who also happens to be a really prominent member of Portland's LGBTQ community, they got together and said, what's something where there's genuine need, but where we're kind of going to play it a little bit safe because we're probably going to shut Roosevelt down. So into that situation came the Church of Jesus Christ, uh, one church in particular called South Lake. that's a mega church by Portland, Oregon standards. A church of 2000 is like a mega church. And, um, and it was a church kind of in a, in, a, in a kind of an area like this, a pretty wealthy suburb of Portland, 20 miles away from the neighborhood of Roosevelt High School. Looking back, we made a lot of mistakes. We really should have had, you know, churches partnering with schools in their own neighborhood. But in our naivete and just trying to figure things out, we just kind of let it loose and all kinds of things happened. But this school was looking for a big project, and they had a little bit of that suburban kind of swagger, you know, a little bit of that sense of like, we're a big church. We've got a lot of wealthy people at our church. We've got execs from Nike, and we've got uh, former NFL quarterbacks. It's a, it's a great thing going on. So you give us a big project, and you just watch what we can do. And they did a tremendous job. They spent six months preparing, and they built trust and relationship with the principal and the facilities manager, and they planned out very, very well a big one-day makeover of the school. And lots of other churches participated. The mayor came. The city commissioners came. The Oregonian, which is our state newspaper, did like a six-part series on the transformation of Roosevelt High School. And if all that would have happened is, you know, a 1,000 people coming and, and doing a makeover of the school, it would have been a great thing. 
and the school would have said thank you, and they did about a million dollars worth of impact on that day. But the thing that was unexpected and unplanned was the fact that the folks from South Lake, despite living in a different neighborhood 20 miles away, God's spirit in them, the spirit of Jesus in them, gave them this overwhelming love for this neighborhood of people very different from them. And they just began showing up in kind of an unplanned way, because it wasn't part of the original plan. They began showing up in little clusters of 5 and 10 and 20, wanting to know how they could serve and volunteer week after week after week. So about six months into this, Charlene, the wonderful principal, an African-American woman that's the principal of Roosevelt High School, took aside Christine, this really vibrant young woman who was the outreach pastor at Southlake, and said, you're here with volunteers from Southlake practically every day of the week. Why don't you just office here? We'll give you office space. You can work here full time. So Southlake made the decision to take their outreach staff and embed them at Roosevelt High School, running a new clothing closet and food pantry and running the Head Start program. Neil Lomax, who was a former NFL quarterback, uh, got on board. They got Nike on board. They rebuilt the football field and the track and the grandstands, uh, became the envy of Portland Public Schools. They began mentoring every kid in the freshman class. And over a period of about five years, the on-time graduation at Roosevelt climbed 20 percentage points. They began attracting students, so it went from 400 to 1,200 students all this took place, I'm saying it quickly, I mean, it obviously took place, it was a, a multi-year approach, but all this was observed by Carol Smith that I mentioned, that like our mayor at the time, was also a very prominent member of the gay and lesbian community. She had all these same misgivings about these Christians and the way that she'd been treated and we can't trust these people, but, but five years into it, she comes to us and says, if that's what you're talking about, let's work together to find a church partner for every school in Portland Public Schools. And so we're about 70% of the way there. More than 318 public schools in the Portland metro area have a formal church partner. Now, obviously, most, most um, churches in Portland aren't like South Lake. They don't have the head of the NFL for Nike and the NFL quarterbacks and resources. Most churches in Portland are the average church, you know, 50, 60 people, either like a struggling church that's kind of aging or a new church plant. But even the small things that, that a smaller church would do of... Uh, once a year, having 10 volunteers help these teachers get the school ready for the new school year, or having one or two senior citizens reading a couple hours a week with uh, a third graders, every little thing made such a difference. And now in 16 of the 19 school districts in the Portland metro area, we have this formal school partnership network. We'll have gatherings where the superintendent will bring every principal for a mandatory meeting, we'll bring the pastors, and we'll sit them at tables kind of based on the school that's nearest them, and just build relationships of trust. And uh, we've done all this without in any way having to abandon the gospel. I mean, the, 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 uh, our mayor and all our city leaders, the school superintendents, they know that the Luis Palau Association is an evangelistic organization. They saw the festival. The mayor was there on the stage at the festival. Um, and so we haven't in any way had to hide the fact that our greatest joy is to share the good news of Jesus. We're not hiding that. At the same time, of course, uh, at the school level, the superintendent was really concerned about proselytizing. You probably heard that word. And so her concern was, you know, all these Christians, her image was every Christian is like a fire-breathing street evangelist that's marching around, you know, with a, you know, Turner Burn sign or handing out tracts all the time. And when she kind of expressed her concern, I remember laughing and saying, if that's your concern, you don't know our people at all. Most of them, you couldn't pay them to ever open their mouth and talk about Jesus in any way. So like your concerns are not uh, valid. 
And because we know that the reality is for most people, I'm sure some of you here and most people in Portland, the problem is not stopping them from aggressively sharing their faith. It's giving them a little bit more confidence to say, I'm proud to be in relationship with Jesus. I'm proud of my brothers and sisters in Christ. We're not better than anybody else, but we are bound together by this, this relationship with Jesus. We're part of this amazing movement that loves and serves the community. Even when we disagree on important issues, we're able to love and serve together. So the schools were one great way of, of partnership. Um, another great way that the church is bound together to serve the community was in the foster care system. And we, we kind of learned through this process that simple Jesus-like approach of just asking questions. Uh, we went with the, to the mayor, we love you. How can we serve you? We went to the school superintendent. Thank you for serving our students. How can we make life easier for you? So that same process took place in the foster care system. One couple who were foster parents at one of our great churches in downtown Portland, a real hipster kind of church called Imago Day Community. Uh, they were foster parents, and they were doing the best they could as one couple to go and, and love and serve the people in the foster care office there. The Department of Human Services is what, is what it's called in Portland that manages the system. There are nine DHS offices across the metro area. So they were doing their best as one couple to go and take cookies and just serve the people in that office because they felt, felt that they were super discouraged. And so they went to the leaders of their church, and because of this unified approach, everything we do in Portland is all done together with these 400 churches that have said, for the long haul, we are together for the gospel in Portland. So it quickly, the idea quickly spread, and so we did the same simple thing. We went with a group of pastors that's near that office to all the nine DHS offices, same simple question, we love you, thank you for serving, in this case, thank you for serving our most vulnerable kids. I can't imagine, it's got to be a challenging situation. What can we do to make your life easier? I'll never forget the first one of those meetings that I went to. It happened to be a woman that was the head of that East Multnomah County DHS office. Um, as we sat down with her and just made that simple statement of Christ-like love and, and thank and just gratitude, she burst into tears. And when she composed herself, she said, nobody has ever come in here asking what they can do to help. Nobody that walks through these doors um, is happy. We're, the, we're at best, we're the enemy that's kind of keeping them from their kids. We're an obstacle to be gotten around. If the media come in, it's never to say, good job, thank you for serving. It's because no matter how long things have been going okay, the minute something goes wrong, and despite all of our best efforts, a child is abused or hurt in some way, then we're on the front page of the paper being attacked. You, these people should all be fired. They don't know what they're doing. You just can't imagine how, what it feels like to be doing your best and have not only no recognition, but feel like you're attacked. And so it was so simple, the simple love of Jesus. So what, what did we end up doing? We, we worked with the Portland Timbers, our major league soccer team, and many, many churches, and just began doing makeovers of all these DHS offices and took them from being kind of gritty, discouraging, urban kind of offices, industrial kind of government bureaucratic places and turned the visitation rooms um, into beautiful spaces. We created spaces for the kids to play. We uh, began finding volunteers that were background checked, et cetera, that would be on call so that when oftentimes the police come in the middle of the night with these kids with their belongings in a garbage bag, uh, before then it was like sitting on a folding metal chair waiting to find out where they were going to go. Now there's someone there in the name of Jesus to love and take care of those kids so that the caseworker can do their job. We began serving the staff themselves, 
uh, we began um, saying what would it look like to create welcome kits so that every child that comes into the child welfare system would have something of their own with a handwritten note that says, you are loved. Uh, we began doing foster parents' nights out so that those that are in the foster care system could have a break. And of course, ultimately, the, 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 the state of Oregon said, we need 800 more foster families to just keep up with the need. Um, and so we're about a third of the way there toward raising up the desired foster families. So all this, again, I'm sharing this quickly, all these things happen not in a matter of weeks, but over a period of years as the church collectively, all the different churches, tackle these systems. Um, the state of Oregon came to us, just like the school superintendent had come and said, without a penny of government funding, we spend millions of dollars every year trying to get people interested and willing to serve. Without one penny, the churches have done more to impact foster care than all the millions of dollars we spend. Can we work together? Let's take Embrace Oregon, as we call it, to all 36 counties of the state of Oregon. So the Church of Jesus Christ in Portland has gone from being viewed as pariahs, like the worst people in town, homophobes, you're, you, you, we don't know what good you are. It's gone from being unknown or, frankly, almost hated, to being viewed as essential citizens of Portland. The city, this county, the state wouldn't think of tackling any social issue in our community now without insisting that the churches be at the table because, as our mayor would say, the only people we can count on to come with a good attitude and not asking for anything and doing more than they say they're going to do are the evangelical churches. And, uh, and I wish I had the time to tell you, yeah, thank you. I wish I had the time to tell you uh, the story of Sam himself. It's an amazing story. He's not yet a fully devoted follower of Jesus, but you know, as an openly gay man, mayor of Portland, Oregon at the time, when he went through a crisis of his own, a big scandal, he did something wrong, he'd been lying about it. When um, that crisis came, dad, you know, the first thing that we did was text him and he, and, and he said, yes, please, would your dad come and meet with me? I don't have time to tell the whole story, but it, dad, just this opportunity for two hours to just answer Sam's question, Luis, I'm a smart guy. I knew that was wrong. How could I have let myself do that? And Dad just, just took a couple hours, as, a, as an, any evangelist would, and just said, doesn't matter what I think, Sam. Let's look at what God's Word think, says. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? And Dad, just this opportunity to share the good news at that point of need with a person who never thought he would be wanting to sit down with an evangelist at his point of need. So Portland is in the process of gradually, slowly, steadily being transformed. Maybe more importantly, the body of Christ is being transformed. So we've talked about word, deed, power. Um, it's, not, it's not enough to just have an intellectual knowledge of the good news of Jesus Christ, John 3.16. It's not enough even to, to live out our faith, as important as that is. We need the power of Jesus Christ living in us, transforming us from within. Um, Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. When we think about the Holy Spirit, the simplest way I know to describe uh, the work of the Holy Spirit is simply God's empowering presence. Yeah, one simple way to think about what can sometimes feel a little bit mysterious, what does it mean to have Jesus Christ living in me? What does it mean to not just be doing my best, but to, in a humble way to acknowledge Jesus Christ lives in me because of the Holy Spirit, God's empowering presence. And so word, 
deed and power. I hope you think and have a, a sense of confidence, even though you live in a place uh, that's very similar to our context in Portland, Oregon. You, you live in a place where the Bible isn't probably talked about a lot, where people don't necessarily uh, choose to live by what we would consider biblical standards, where people don't uh, attend church nearly as, as often or as many uh, high percentages as we wish. But if we can live these ways, if we can allow ourselves to be saturated with the Word of God, if we can live in radically just ways, generous ways, if we can find simple ways to love and serve and especially do it in collaboration with other churches because there's a certain power in people seeing churches that they think, you know, all you guys can't even get along with yourselves. Why should I believe your message? And when they can see the church working together uh, in, in, uh, in serving, and we can do that all in the power of the Holy Spirit, um, it's amazing. And, and despite Portland, Portland is still not a very, very church place. The, the confidence in the gospel among believers in Portland has grown exponentially because we've seen the way that God can use us when we're willing to band together. So for us at the Palau Association, it's been a joy uh, to do this in hundreds of cities around the world, places we may never do a big festival, but cities all over the place are discovering these very basic biblical ways of living and loving and serving together, and it makes a huge difference. Let me just close in prayer, and then I think uh, James is going to come on up. Father, we do yield ourselves to your power. We say, come Holy Spirit and change us. Give us the confidence, the boldness, the joy of allowing you to use us as individuals, but also as a whole congregation to use the river, to use the river in partnership with other churches in the South Bay to say, what would it look like if together we could serve our schools, serve the foster care system, whatever you might lead us to do, to, let, to live out our, our faith in the power of the Holy Spirit, with the desire to see more and more people encounter Jesus Christ and have their lives transformed and be part of building your kingdom on earth. Thank you for the privilege of serving you, Lord. Amen.